And we're going to be getting into Galatians 6. And really, I was challenged this week as I got into the text, and so I hope, I hope you are as well. But just, just a brief introduction to the book of Galatians. It's most often divided up into three sections of two chapters each. In each section, Paul is arguing for the justification by faith alone. The first section, the first two chapters, he's arguing for justification by faith alone, personally through his own authority. And then the second section, verses chapters 3 and 4, he's arguing for justification by faith alone, theologically. And then the final two chapters, he is arguing for justification by faith alone, and he defends it practically. And the book of Galatians, as many of you know, it contains very stern language. Some of Paul's strongest rebukes because the church was so quickly deserting Christ, turning to a false gospel. And the false gospel which the Galatians were defecting to was the gospel of faith plus keeping the law. That's what justifies you. That's what brings you righteousness is faith in Christ, but you also keep the law. Jesus plus works equals salvation. And if you're in Galatians, go to chapter 3. Paul says in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul points out their inconsistency in that they, at first, professed salvation by faith, but now they profess works-based salvation and sanctification. And Paul asks, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under a spell? turn you back to the law for justification. And look down at Galatians 3, 10-11. He continues on. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, it's plain in Scripture, look at the life of Abraham. No one is justified by works, but only condemned and cursed because they cannot obey it perfectly. But he says, Christ bore our curse and the demands of the law that we might be saved through faith. So Paul here, first two chapters, he was defending justification by faith alone personally. Here he's defending it theologically. And then flip over to chapter 5, where Paul begins to defend it practically. That is to say, he teaches what justification by faith alone looks like in practical life. How to live out the theology that he just taught them, and that's often how Paul's books are ordered. He gives them theology and then tells them how to put it into practice. Galatians 5, 
1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery is the yoke of the law that no one could bear. Paul says that believers are set free from the law. And he commands us not to submit to it again, particularly to think that it saves us. We don't have to put ourselves under the Mosaic law, and it certainly doesn't save us. In fact, Paul says right after that in verse 3, that if you submit yourself to part of it, you're obligated to keep the whole thing. So those who thought that they would just get people to be circumcised, that's enough, just be circumcised. Paul says, no, you're obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4. But then Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The important work of circumcision, which Moses failed to perform on his son, and so God sought to put him to death for it, Paul says now means nothing in Christ. Only faith working through love means anything. We have been set free from the bondage to the law that we might use our freedom to serve one another. Look at Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul says, and this is a bit of a paradox here, he says, you are set free to serve one another. That's that word doulos, slave. You are set free to be a slave to one another. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, on the one hand, and I quote, a Christian man is a free Lord over all things and subject to no one. End quote. But on the other hand, he says, and I quote, a Christian man is a subservient slave of all things and subject to everyone. So you're free, you're subject to no one, and yet you are a subservient slave of all. And one commentator notes that Luther, he was an astute student, particularly of Galatians, and he understood the key to this paradox is love. We have been set free from slavery to the law, and we have been set free to serve Christ. Out of love for Christ, we subject ourselves to Him and to our fellow brothers. We have been set free from the law of Moses and made slaves of Christ, slaves to a law of love. And such a slave is exemplified not by works of the flesh, not by following the Mosaic law, but exemplified by works and the fruit of the Spirit. He goes into this section in verse 16 of 5, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not what characterizes that person who is of the Spirit. What characterizes the person of the Spirit, he goes on in verse 22, to the fruit of the Spirit. This is what characterizes the person who is bound to the law of love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
We don't have to serve our flesh anymore. We've been set free to serve Jesus Christ, the law of love, have the Spirit produce in us the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says that the, those who walk by the flesh, they're characterized by the first list there of immorality. And those who walk according to the Spirit are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like. If your life is dominated by sins on that first list, idolatry, sexual immorality, impurity, drunkenness, enmity, strife, you are not of the Spirit if your life is dominated by those things. But if your life is dominated by that second list, if that second list is evident in you, and you're growing in those things, then you have confidence that the Spirit is working in you. And you are operating on a spirit based on the spirit of love, the law of love, rather than according to the flesh. You're no longer enslaved to the sinful passions you once were. You are set free to serve God and love Him. Paul then gives a smaller list of things to put off in verse 25, or 26 rather. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then... He's going to begin in chapter 6 to tell us what to put on instead. So he says, put off those things, being conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, and then he's going to tell us what to put on in Galatians 6, 1-5. And these are going to be the verses that we cover today. Galatians 6, 1-5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So chapter 6, Paul, he begins to give us some practical examples of the fruit of the Spirit in action. That is to say, how the fruit of the Spirit looks in the everyday life of the church. If you're walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, this is what you should do. This is what that fruit will do, will look like. This is what the law of love looks like. Versus the law of Moses that was heaping burdens on people. At least the legalists who were heaping that law onto them. So here in Galatians 6, 1-5, we see three exhortations for believers to take up mutual care and concern for the good of the church. Paul commands us to concern ourselves with fellow brothers in Christ. And not have the live and let live mentality. Or the Colorado cowboy mentality. Out on your own, doing your own thing. He commands us to be rightly involved in one another's lives. So we have three commands here from Paul. And they're going to be our outline points. Three commands from Paul. First, concern yourself with gentle restoration. Concern yourself with gentle restoration. Number two, concern yourself with with general burdens. 
And number three, concern yourself with judicial examination. So let's begin with that first one. Concern yourself with gentle restoration. Verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we have the command there, restore him, but it begins with a condition. If anyone is caught in any transgression. But before that, we have the word brothers. Brothers is a term of endearment, affection for those near to Paul because of their relationship to Christ. This command is a direct address to the Christian brothers. He says, you brothers. Everyone in the churches that he's writing to, you brothers. You consider yourself a brother. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you restore him. That word thereafter, brothers, in the ESV is anyone. And it makes it sound like anyone at all. However, the Greek word there is the word for man. It's just talking about a person. But he's not talking about anyone in the entire world. It's one in the church. We don't go around restoring unbelievers, but this is talking about people in the church. He says, if a man is caught, not excluding the women, it's just a generality, apply to anyone in the faith. So we don't try to restore just anybody, but we restore those who are in the church who are stumbling and need to be restored. It says, if anyone is caught, Caught refers to being taken by surprise or being overtaken or overpowered. It was used in Greek literature of a Roman cohort that was ambushed and overtaken. But it's not strictly talking about being taken by surprise like you never saw it coming. It also refers to being overtaken due to weakness. So any brother who's overtaken in weakness, in any transgression... That is the indefinite pronoun there, meaning any. Any kind of transgression. And the word for transgression there, it's not one of the more common words for sin. In uh, early Greek literature, this word was used to refer to things falling or stumbling, like a boat falling in the, in the wake of or, or in the line of another boat and getting hit. And the only time this noun for transgression is used outside of Pauline writings is when uh, Jesus Christ uses it. Matthew and Mark record the words from Jesus in Matthew 14, 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And the only other time it's used by Jesus is recorded by Mark in Mark eleven twenty five. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So Paul is using language associated with Christ, indicating that they ought to forgive as Jesus forgave, restore as Jesus restore, restored sinners. Uh, one commentator, Lenski, says of this word, he says, Paul is excluding deliberate sin. 
He deals with sins which one may be tempted or overpowered or overtaken in some way. But he says sins that are due to ignorance, weakness, the deceptive power of sin, and the persuasion and bad example of others. So those who willfully and intentionally pursue sin, they're not the ones being talked about here. Those need to be sternly rebuked and turned from their folly to save their souls. Paul told Titus to sharply rebuke those who willfully and intentionally contradicted sound doctrine. Someone who is caught in any transgression is not one to sharply rebuke. He's been overtaken by temptation. He needs to be gently brought back. So now we come to the imperative in the text. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We have, so we've talked about the condition. We have the command here. But there's also the subject. Who is to be doing this? And the manner. How are we to be doing this? How are we to restore? So Paul says you should restore him. It's a command to cause to be in a condition to function well. The Greek literature occurs very early on in a sense to put in order or to restore something. Most commonly, it's spoken of in medical terms. One quote from Greek literature, this is someone who says, the trainer who takes hold of my neck and fixes and adjusts my waist and shoulders, talking about taking something that's out of place and fixing it, restoring it. It's most often used by writers to refer to setting dislocated bones. So again, it means to cause to be in a condition to function well. Someone caught in sin, he's not in a condition to function well. Imagine someone here, you see him walking around church with a dislocated shoulder or hip. Or if we're going to talk about the analogy of being caught, imagine someone walking around with a bear trap on their leg. They're caught. They're bleeding all over the place. They are not in a state to function well. Those caught in sin are described this way. Paul says, restore him to a condition to function well. But who is to do this command? Paul says, it is you who are spiritual. But who is that referring to? Is this referring to the super mature Christians in the church? As in, you don't have to do this if you're not mature yet? No, that's not it. There's not separate classes of Christians within the body of Christ. Think about the context where, just, where Paul just finished talking about the fruit of the Spirit and commending people to live in step, in keeping with the Spirit. Those who are spiritual are those who have the Spirit. Simple as that. But this could also be a jab to those in the church that Paul's writing to who focused on the law, on circumcision, who thought that they were the spiritually mature ones. We are superior because we have been circumcised. There are many who thought that in the church. Paul says no. The true spiritual ones are the ones who will help a brother caught in a transgression. If you think you're spiritual... This is what you do. 
This is what it looks like. Helping a brother who has fallen into sin, not coming up with a sense of your self-righteousness and gloating about your self-righteousness. So this isn't talking about a higher class of Christian. This is just talking about Christians, spiritual people. This is what you do. This is what Paul commands us to do. He commanded the Galatian church and we are commanded as well. It is the responsibility of the Christian to take up the cause of helping those who stumble in sin and help them get into a condition to function well. Another commentator, Todd Wilson, puts it this way, and I quote, This is just what the Galatians need to do. If they're truly going to serve one another in love, Galatians 5.13, and follow the leading of the Spirit, Galatians 5.18, they're going to have to come alongside erring members of their congregation and restore them. Regrettably, he continues, this is not something Christians do very often or very well. Too often we act like timid medical students who sees a patient with a bone fracture but is too insecure or immature to say anything about it. Or worse yet, we can be too proud or preoccupied with ourselves even to notice much less care. In fact, we may even be annoyed that this person did something so stupid as to break his arm. So we let the person go on with the pain without addressing it with that person in need in a straightforward way that brings about that person's restoration. End quote. So we, all believers in the church, we are commanded to restore such a one. But how are we to restore them? We see someone walking around with their shoulder out of joint, right? You wouldn't walk up behind that person and just grab them by the arm and pop their shoulder back into place, right? That's not a loving way to do it. We do it in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness is the manner in which we obey this command. Gentleness refers to the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Let me say that again. This is the definition of this word translated as gentleness. It is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And it could be translated as humility, courtesy, considerateness, or meekness. But here it's translated as gentle. Jesus refers to himself with this word when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when you are restoring an erring brother, don't be impressed with your own self-importance. Don't be impressed with your own self-righteousness. But consider that other person as more important than yourself. You do it gently, like you would want someone to confront you in your sin. Paul's commanding them to gently restore sinners because most likely they were not gently restoring sinners. A lot of the times the commands that Paul issues to churches is because they are struggling with that very issue. And we can imagine that a church full of Pharisaic legalistic people would be more prone to look down on those caught in sin and be harsh towards them rather than gentle. 
Those full of pride and promoting their own self-righteousness are quick to berate and demean those in sin because it makes them look and feel better about themselves. Therefore, Paul again utilizes the language of Christ Himself to draw a connection to what is righteous. Paul is pointing the churches in Galatia that are full of these Pharisees, these legalists. He's pointing them back to the example of the gentle and meek Jesus Christ. Paul says to treat fellow Christians caught in sin essentially the way Jesus treated them, using the language that Jesus used of Himself. Jesus who rejoiced at their repentance, rejoiced to forgive them, to welcome them back with open arms, and to gently set them right to function well in the body of Christ. Just think of all the healings Christ did. So tender and gentle, setting them right to to function well. Just a picture of what we're to do spiritually with people in sin. Don't treat brothers caught in sin like the Pharisees treated sinners. Saying, God, I thank you that I don't struggle with a sin like that. We must humbly restore our brothers and sisters. Yet one commentator says, and I quote, Restoration cannot be accomplished without confrontation. And this may require firm words and a stern rebuke. Yet, even and especially in these cases, Luther's advice is very poignant. And he goes on to quote Luther and he says, Run unto him, and reaching out your hand, raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. This is how Luther exhorted pastors to help their brothers in sin. And if you know anything about Luther, he was not a gentle man. And yet here we even see Luther got this. An astute student of Galatians, he gets this. This is how you are to restore someone who's caught in sin. You go to them, you gently confront them. Embrace him as a brother. But look, you still have to set that bone in place. You grab a hold of them and you say, look, I know this is going to hurt, but this has to be done. And you confront that person's sin. And you set them in a place where they can function well. That takes time. That's not just a one-time confrontation. That could be meeting with them over and over again to help them not fall into that temptation. In the same vein of thinking, Matthew Henry warns, of being too harsh and tells us how we can better do this. He says, and I quote, Many needful reproofs lose their efficacy by being given in wrath. Let me say that again. Many needful reproofs lose their efficacy by being given in wrath. But when they are managed with calmness and tenderness and appear to proceed from sincere affection and concern for the welfare of those to whom they are given, they are likely to make a due impression. And that is exactly what Proverbs 15.1 refers to when it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we want to confront and restore a brother with soft words, a soft answer, where they understand and they totally get that we care. We have an affection for them. 
We also want to do this task of spiritual restoration and confrontation discreetly and as privately as possible. Calling somebody out publicly is, is not a good practice. Neither is confronting someone on Facebook in public. Neither is confronting your spouse in front of the children or disciplining your children in front of the other children. Gentleness means we're considering them first, what's best for them. We want to cover their shame not open it up, expose it to the rest of the world. Paul here, he's further exegeting Christ in church discipline. Matthew 18 says, perform church discipline in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Not having an inflated view of your own importance, but recognizing the importance of the other person and confronting them in humility and gentleness. This is love, one commentator says, and I quote, it's a love that's humble, gentle, and gracious, yet strong, courageous, and full of conviction. It's love that restores. It's love that always seeks first the glory of God and then the good of the one being restored. And finally, the purity and the unity of the body of Christ as a whole. That is how we are to restore a brother. And I love how this one commentator ties it back to conviction. Our concern is for the glory of God first. And therefore we must restore our brothers and sisters because we want God to be glorified. Whether or not we leave a brother caught in sin there without confronting him, just leaving him there, that's not debatable. It's something that we must do for the glory of God for the good of the other person, for the purity of the church. But we must do it in a spirit of gentleness. And then Paul cautions the one who is going to restore a brother, really a caution to all of us, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. The ESV makes this a separate sentence, but grammatically and logically in the Greek it's all part of the same sentence. And the NASB, New King James, CSB, they all reflect that. Uh, but this is the CSB version. Let me read it to you. It says, You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves, so that you also won't be tempted. Watching, it puts it in that participial form. It indicates an ongoing activity continuing and enduring action. Watching out, it refers to paying close attention to something. So Paul warns the one who would wade into the waters of restoring a brother to continually watch himself, lest he be tempted or enticed to improper behavior. But what exactly are we watching out for? Certainly we need to take heed lest we too should fall into the same sin, 1 Corinthians 10.12. But is that the full depth of the command? And I would say yes and no, because the, that is indicating pride. If you, you need to take heed lest you stumble into that because you become proud and think you're better than that and thus you'll fall into it. But the full depth is not just watch so we don't fall into the same sin. But the full command is to guard against pride, which one result would be to fall into the same sin. 
Todd Wilson again, he asks the same question. He says, tempted in what way? Certainly we may be tempted to stumble in the same way the erring person has. But more to the point, we may be tempted and almost certainly will be tempted to gloat over others who, have, who are overtaken in sin. Not that we would ever intend to, but sin is just that subtle. And pride and conceit are just that powerful. End quote. So we have to be ever diligent as we confront those in sin to remind ourselves of this. But for the grace of God, there go I. If it were not for the sanctifying grace of God, the power of God working in me, I would be caught in that same sin. Or sins much worse. And so we have to be ever diligent to guard our pride. This is not a temptation. Primarily, we're not tempted to get down and play in the mud when we're helping someone get out and get cleaned up. Rather, it's a temptation to look down on the person that we're helping out. That we have to do it at all. And so all of us, if you claim to be a Christian with the Holy Spirit, this is a command from Paul. You must concern yourself with restoring brothers and sisters who sin. Not just the simple task of confronting them and moving on, but taking care of them. Setting the bone back into place and taking care of them for a couple days while it heals. Meeting with them again and again. Preventing them from falling into the same sin, but setting them up so that they can walk and function appropriately on their own. So we all, with a spirit of God, are commanded to restore those caught in sin with a spirit of gentleness and continually watching our pride that we don't fall into the temptation of looking down on them. So the first command there, we are to concern ourselves with gentle restoration. And next, Paul commands us to concern ourselves not just with the burden of sin, but love demands that we help our brothers carry the general burdens of life. So number two, concern yourself with general burdens. Look at verses two and three. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Command there is bear one another's burdens. And in the Greek, Paul throws that word one another at the front of the sentence just to emphasize it. One another bear burdens. And again, this is a plural command from Paul. It's to the entire churches that he's writing to every single person as a community. This is what they're to do. And one implication of this command is that you don't get to be exempt from this command if you have a heavy burden yourself. Paul gave a condition in the previous passage if someone has stumbled. He doesn't give a condition here. He doesn't say, if you have a heavy burden, don't worry about this. Or if you have no burden, carry one another's burdens. No. He says, bear one another's burdens. He doesn't make any qualifications. If you have a heavy burden, you still have to bear one another's burdens. One commentator says, and I quote, our burdens may differ in size and shape, will vary in kind depending on the providential ordering of our lives. For some, it is the burden of temptation and the consequence of moral lapse, as in the verse one here. For others, it may be a physical ailment or family crisis or lack of employment or a host of other things, but no Christian is exempt from burdens. 
End quote. And I would add to that, no Christian is exempt from bearing one another's burdens. But you might think, well, that's not very sympathetic to the person who has a heavy load to bear. And I would say it's actually just the opposite. What happens when you have a heavy burden and you aren't bearing anybody else's burden? You become self-absorbed, introspective. You don't recognize that there are other people out there carrying heavier burdens or burdens you'd rather not carry. Bearing one another's burdens keeps us humble. It keeps us from falling into the pit of self-pity. And this really has to do with knowing and being known in the church. Bearing one another's burdens has to do with knowing and being known, letting people know what's going on in your life. Not that same individual, one person you always go to. You've got to spread the load. You've got to spread the load so everybody in the church can help carry burdens. And Paul, he wrote this in the context of churches full of Judaizers and legalists who we know, reading through the Gospels, are known for heaping up burdens on people. Instead, Paul commands them to bear one another's burdens. Don't heap up the burden to circumcise or to add works to salvation. He says instead, bear up one another's burdens. Whereas proud religious people tend to heap up burdens on people, Paul says, humbly help bear one another's burdens. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees and the scribes this way in Matthew 23, 2-4. He says, scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And in Luke 11, he pronounces woes on them for this. He says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So we need to make sure that we're about burden bearing, not loading people up with more burdens. Heaping burdens up on our fellow church members. And I think of this often with young parents in the church. I think we all have the righteous inclination to share with them our good parenting advice. But if all we do is load them up with all these things that we think that they should do, that isn't a loving thing to do. Loading them up with burdens. You have to schedule everything. You have to regulate everything. You have to do this. You have to do this. And all these things may be right. But if all we're doing is loading them up, but we're not concerned with helping them, we're heaping burdens on them while we ourselves are not willing to lift a finger to help. It may be in a spirit of gentleness and love and wanting to help, but it's a burden too much to bear all at once. Instead, you ought to help bear burdens by getting to know other people. Spending time with them, and then as you see things in their life that they can work on, that you can advise them on, it's bit by bit. Here, try this. Here, do this. This helped me. But you don't take your dump truck load full of good advice and dump it on somebody, no matter what the issue is. That is not burden bearing. That's loading people up. Instead, we should bit by bit, day by day, know one another, spend time with one another, and help them. Yes, help them. Give them that good advice. But bit by bit, as we spend time with them, as we get to know them, 
but not all at once. So I mentioned parenting, but this goes for every area of other area of life as well. You see someone whose life is a mess. Financially, you don't dump on them. They just can't organize their life. You don't just dump everything on them, how to fix it. If someone's struggling with sin, you don't just load them up with a bunch of verses and send them on their way. Yes, load them up with a bunch of verses, but explain them, meet with them, teach them, help them understand and get a hold of it. The same thing with anything. Someone's having a hard time with their life situation. Don't just load them up with verses about not struggling or not being anxious to trust God, but then send them on their way. Do that. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Bear their burden. Pray for them. And let them know you're praying for them. Pray with them. But pick up their burden. Help them carry it. Don't just load them up with more. Paul goes on. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or you will fulfill the law of Christ. This phrase, law of Christ, is a term that Paul coined right here. It's found nowhere else in Scripture. And it's in a context where people are pushing for the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, particularly in circumcision. Paul said, bearing one another's burdens is fulfilling the law of Christ. Which do you think is more important? The law of Christ or the law of Moses? Who gets prominence? Are you going to try and fulfill the law of Moses and heap burdens on people? Or are you going to fulfill the law of Christ and bear one another's burdens? Matthew Henry again says, and I quote, As Christians, we are freed from the law of Moses, yet we are under the law of Christ. And therefore, instead of laying unnecessary burdens upon others, as those who urge the observance of Moses' law did, it much more becomes us to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. The law of Christ is a law of love. Love your neighbor by bearing his burden, not heaping up more works. If you bear one another's burdens, you are fulfilling the law of Christ, which is preeminent over the law of Moses. And you may think that your parenting advice is on par with the law of Moses, or the way you do finances is on par with the law of Moses, and everybody should do it. But that is not the case. Don't burden other people with your conscience. But Paul goes on in verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And while this verse seems puzzling at first, it's very simple. We're still talking about bearing one another's burdens. And this verse is for those of us, and I put myself in that category intentionally. This verse is for those of us who have burdens to bear and think, I got this. I don't need any help. Or when something difficult is going on in life, someone offers to help and we say, don't worry about it, I got it. It's the Colorado cowboy way. I only need myself. I don't need anybody else. But that is not the way of Christ. Lenski again, he puts it this way. He says, being self-satisfied, such a man thinks that he is something and needs no help from his brothers in bearing any burdens. He himself being capable enough. Thus also he will have no heart for his burdened brethren. For what makes us tender and helpful, meek and kindly towards others is the realization that we ourselves are nothing and that we too need our brethren. 
Satisfaction with self makes poor helpers for those in need of fraternal support. And another commentator, he elaborates further on that and he says, such an attitude of conceited self-importance leads to two fundamental failures in relationship. One, the refusal to bear the burdens of others, for that would be a task too menial and deprecating for a person who thinks he is something. And the other, the refusal to allow anyone else to help should to help shoulder one's own burdens, since that would be an admission of weakness and need. To live this way, however, is to practice the art of self-deception, for no man is an island entire to itself. And I don't know about you, but I tend to think that all the time. Don't worry about it. I got this. As I read that this week, I had much repenting to do of my pride. And if you are proud in this way, this here is a command from Paul to let other people bear your burdens. Because you are deceiving yourself if you think you can do it alone. Not to mention that is not how God designed the body of Christ to function. We are members of the body of Christ for a reason. We need one another. Don't deceive yourself. Accept help when people offer Know and be known so they can help burdens. If you think you have a burden to bear that you can bear by yourself, still share it with brothers who can be in prayer for you. Because if you don't, you'll begin to think that you can go it alone. You'll begin to think you have the strength to do it alone, and you do not. Pride comes before destruction. And Paul is warning against pride here over and over and over again. So Paul has commanded us to restore an erring brother, to bear one another's burdens. And this third command for mutual care and concern for one another is to take up a judicial examination of ourselves. One way we can love others is to take up a judicial examination of ourselves. So number three, concern yourself with judicial examination. Verses 4 and 5. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This command, unlike the previous two, is in singular form. It means that Paul is now commanding the individual to take up a task, not the church collectively to do together, but an individual to do himself. Unlike bearing burdens, this is something each individual has to do. He has to test his own work. Somebody else can't test your work for you. To test means to make a critical examination of something, to, to, to determine its genuineness, to put something to test. And what are we to examine and test? We are to examine and test our work. Work is in the singular form, but as even our English word indicates, it could encapsulate a large body of work. A whole bunch of individual works make up one larger work. And I think what Paul is asking them to do here is another exercise that will foster humility in a bunch of churches that tend toward pride. Moises Silva says this, and I quote, Paul's concern that the Galatians should be conscious of the burdens and weaknesses of others, however, could lead to a sense of superiority and thus sinful boasting. 
So in verse 5, he calls to mind the need and propriety of looking only at oneself for evaluation. That is, one should look only at the weakness of others for the purpose of compassion and not comparison. Let me say that again. One should only look at the weaknesses of others for compassion to help them and pick them up, not for comparison. But what do we tend to do? We tend to compare ourselves to them. Paul says, no, 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 no. Look, examine your own life. As we are mutually caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens, we ought to regularly examine ourselves to make sure there's no pride therein. We're not comparing ourselves to others. Like, I can't believe this person needs me to help them with this. I would never do that. can't believe this person is still struggling with this. I got over that a long time ago. Instead, we ought to examine ourselves, test ourselves. And Todd Wilson, he says that if we're going to grade ourselves, he says, and I quote, we should do so not on a curve. Not on a curve we ourselves have set, but rather the law of love, the law of Christ. And we shouldn't worry about comparing ourselves with others, but instead simply look to Christ and let our lives be measured against His. So we're to test ourselves, and the standard that we are to test ourselves to is the standard of Christ. Not the standard of the other person who's struggling in sin, or whose burdens we need to carry. We measure ourselves to Christ. The standard is Christ. And Wilson, he goes on to say, when we do this, we envision our sinful little selves before the one from whom even earth and sky flee away. Revelation 20.11. He goes on and he says, and grandiose ideas about who we are or what we have done themselves flee away. When you look and you examine your own work, your own life, your reason to boast will be in yourself alone and not in another. That is to say, if anyone examines himself by the standard of Christ and the law of love, not comparing himself to others, he will always come to the humble opinion that there is nothing for him to boast about but his own weakness and the person of Christ working in him. This is in complete contrast to the circumcision party who in verse 13 in chapter 6 They're boasting of other people getting circumcised. Paul says, rejoice, boast in your heart about what the grace of God has done in your life. Boast in your weakness that has magnified the grace of God in your life and praise Him for what He has done in your life. But don't go around boasting that you got others to adhere to your conscience. Don't rejoice and boast because you got someone to adhere to the same parenting schedule or the same method of schooling or the same meal planning, budgeting model, whatever it is. Help other people, bear one another's burdens, but examine yourself. Make sure you aren't boasting in what you've done for other people. I think Paul had something similar in mind as he did when he challenged the church at Corinth to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, another church full of pride. Paul is humbling them here and he's humbling us. 
There were many churches in Galatia who had forsaken the gospel and trusted in works to save them. Paul is challenging those people too to examine themselves. See if they're just religious zealots for Judaism or if they are saved. That is to say, if you have no desire to help your brother, you have no desire to bear one another's burdens. Paul's calling you to account here to examine yourself because he wants you to find out that you don't really know Christ. You aren't one of those spiritual people. And you ought to repent and turn to Christ. And that's what this last verse is getting us all to think about the final judgment. For each will have to bear his own load. Paul commanded, bear one another's burdens. But here he seemingly contradicts himself by saying that each one will bear his own load. This section and the following set of verses, they have a distinct rhythm to them. They are present verbs, present commands and participles, resulting in future verbs. It's not as easy to see in the English because they render them different ways, but just let me read this to you and you can hear it. Present commands, present indicatives, followed by future results. Bear one another's burdens and you will fulfill the law of Christ. Test yourselves, and you will have nothing to boast in yourself. And then going into the next section, this rhythm continues. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary, For in due season we will reap. And so when Paul says, he puts this in the future tense, each one will bear his own load. He's putting it in the future realm, end time reaping, talking about the judgment. And those Judaizers who heaped up burdens on the church of Christ with burdens, they heaped up burdens too heavy for themselves to even carry They didn't lift one finger to carry such burdens. They will one day have to bear the full weight of that law. The load that the Judaizers were putting on the churches of Galatia, a works-based salvation, they would one day have to bear that full load, that burden on Judgment Day. No one can help you bear your burden on that day. When each one stands before Christ, he must bear his own burden. And no one can help with that save for Jesus Christ. The one who has turned to Christ and received an easy and light burden will be able to bear it on Judgment Day because Christ's righteousness, Christ has totally fulfilled the law and we have received His righteousness when we believe and follow Christ. And on Judgment Day, we can meet the burden of the law because we have the works of Christ. We are robed in Christ's righteous works. But those who try to stand on their own righteousness, they will be crushed with the infinitely heavy burden under the glorious, weighty, perfect law of God. Each one of us will have to bear our own burden on that day. No one can help. So let me ask you, you're here today and you don't know if you know Christ. You don't know if you have received the righteous robe of Christ. On that day, you will have to bear the full burden. If you have violated the law of God at just one point, you've broken the whole thing, James says. 
the perfect righteous law of God, the holiness of God is offended and you will not be able to stand up under His wrath. The burden of the law is too much for any of us to bear. And if you do not repent of your sins and believe in Christ and trust in His work to save you alone, you will be crushed and sent to everlasting punishment. We who are believers, we have the righteous robes of Christ. We are to follow Paul's commands here. We are to be a people who live based on the law of love, who humbly restore one who has fallen into sin. We are eager to bear up one another's burdens. Not try to get someone to carry our burden, our entire burden. Not try to carry our entire burden alone. Nor load people up with burdens too heavy to bear. But we love one another. We bear their burdens. And we are to rejoice in what the Lord is doing in our lives. Rejoice in the grace in our own life. Examine our own life. And rejoice in all that God is doing in spite of us. In spite of our weakness. May we be a church that exemplifies this all around humility and concern for the body of Christ here at Grace. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, there is nothing in us that merits salvation. There's nothing in us that deserves salvation. There's nothing in us that adds to Your works that save us. We all have to stand before You one day. No one but Christ met the burden of the law. And if there are any here today who are self-righteous and thinking that they are had anything to do with their salvation, any of their works factor into their salvation, I pray that You would convict them today of the utter sinfulness of their life. That there is nothing good in them. That their most righteous deeds were but rags. That they would turn Turn from their pride and receive Your righteousness. And I pray, Lord, for all of us who are Christians here today that we would heed these words, that we would give our lives to knowing and being known and bearing one another's burdens in love, restoring the brothers in love, constantly examining ourselves that we might be more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.